We're in Ephesians 4, 15, and 16. And before I read that passage, I want to refamiliarize you with the mandate or the purpose of this sermon series. The church's commission from Jesus Christ to the apostles in Matthew chapter 28 was go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All authority has been given to me under heaven and on earth. In other words, there is nobody who can refute your message. And he said also this, and lo, I am with you. You're not on your own. So what is, what is it to make disciples? We recognize as the church, that's our, that's our job. That's the one thing Jesus said, get busy doing this. What does it mean to make a disciple? Well, I've heard it defined really simply and well as just helping somebody else walk with Jesus. To teach them to obey, which means to walk. Obedience is not in the mind, it's to walk. All that I have commanded. In other words, find Jesus, show them what he said, and then help them to obey it and to live according to it. Which begs the question of me as a leader and an overseer, is our church making disciples? Is my, is what I prioritize in leadership is what we pursue as a church in ministry and in our time together, is it helping others walk with Jesus? Are you helped in walking with Jesus? And I don't just mean, did you get saved? And so now you're a disciple. I mean, are you continually feeling like you are walking more closely with Jesus as a result of being a part of this church family? Some of you might honestly answer no. And, and I wouldn't take that as, personal, I would take that as, as, a, as a church, we need to make sure that most of the time people are answering yes to that question as a result of what we're doing. At the beginning of this passage in, in chapter 4, it says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In other words, you've received the gospel. It has washed you, has transformed you, has brought you into the family. Now are you walking in a way that is worthy? that is worthy of that calling, that is worthy of that message. Do you feel worthy in the way that you walk? I do not. Uh, Perhaps we should not necessarily think ourselves worthy, but nonetheless, Paul calls us to that. We need to examine our lives and walk in a way that is worthy, which means we need to get rid of the stuff that is unworthy of the calling, and we need to pursue and sharpen and cultivate the things that are worthy of that calling. So I think my job as a leader and as a preacher in making disciples, because I believe that that's my primary role, I want to comfort you with the gospel that has saved you. I want to comfort you in the redemption that God has brought about in your life through Christ, giving you faith, giving you eyes to see and a heart to repent and believe. I want to comfort you in that, that God has accepted you. That we are not welcomed into heaven or rejected on the basis of your works. This whole series is very action-oriented, to walk in a manner worthy. It's very action-oriented. And so at the end of it, and I know we've had a big break, but through these first three weeks, you may have felt very inadequate, very fallen short of the uh, calling 
of the worthiness of the calling. And I want to comfort you this morning that the gospel covers your weakness and your inability to obey to the extent that we wish we could. And that as a family, we will walk together to grow in this. But I am also here to make you uncomfortable. I'm here to make you uncomfortable walking in a manner that is unworthy. I want to comfort you in your inability to do so. And I want to show you the gospel and I want to present to you God's grace. But I want to make you uncomfortable. And if you sit under my teaching or, or the teaching of God's word, I should say, you should be very uncomfortable seeing the standard of discipleship and completely ignoring it and living in your own way. I want you to feel uncomfortable. I want you to feel exposed by God's word. I want you to feel called to change and to walk in a manner that's worthy. The, the gospel has plenty of information about where we were as sinners, right? We were idolaters. We were fornicators. We were liars. We were insolent, insubordinate, rebellious. But then the gospel changed us. And so we look back and we say, look at the transformation. But the Bible also looks forward very deeply and says, now walk in a manner that is worthy. Align your activities, your priorities, your life in step with what God has revealed. Conform those two. Now that is a lifelong process. There's no four-part sermon series that's going to correct all the issues in my life. But may God help us apply this and, and, and strive together for the crown to run, as Paul says, as an athlete unhindered. Take off your winter boots and your snow pants and sprint. Sprint. Because life is short and we are called to this ministry for a very short time and God's authority is with us in Christ. So let me read Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 in its entirety and I'll show you a brief outline. It's not a very long message this morning. Paul says, just to remind us of where he's coming from, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led host, a host of, captain, of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower reigns, regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, and the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. By building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when, it is, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. God, give us ears and hearts to understand and receive this morning. Convict us of where we need to repent and pursue change by the power of the Spirit, Lord, and comfort us where we have failed, that you might be among us, speaking directly to us from your word now, Lord, and we know that you will do so, for the pure of heart will will listen and hear. And God, we, we open our hearts to you now, asking you to speak and that you would be glorified and exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text this morning is just those last two verses, 15 and 16. And our outline is threefold. Number one, disciples grow up. I'm trying to frame our our outlines around what do disciples do? How do I know whether or not I am living as a disciple? Is my discipleship in conformity to the scriptures? So the outline is meant to help you test that. Number one, disciples grow up. Number two, disciples hold the body together. Number three, each disciple takes responsibility. Did you hear that? Number one, disciples grow up. Disciples hold the body together. And each disciple takes responsibility. That's the outline. That's what our text argues to us this morning. And so number one, disciples grow up. Discipleship involves a growing process, which is why when we talk as Christians, we glory in our salvation. We glory in our regeneration, but we do not... What's the word? We do not cling to a moment or a point in time in terms of present day comfort or present day assurance of where we are with Christ. Someone who is a hundred thousand miles away from what the Bible describes as a Christian is not given any comfort to say, well, look back on a day when you prayed. Discipleship involves a growing process. I don't want to get into a discussion of assurance of salvation, which I 100% fully believe in, the assurance of those who are in Christ to be saved and raised up on the last day. But what it does tell us is that there is an alternative to childishness that a disciple ought to be moving toward. Verse 15 begins, Rather, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head rather introduces an alternative to what was said previously. So the building up of the body, which is done through the using of our spiritual gifts to each other, is going to prevent us, in verse 14, from staying as a quote-unquote child. Well, what, what, what does a spiritual child look like? Somebody who's tossed to and fro by the waves and unanchored or carried about lifted up, removed, and shifted by every wind of doctrine, by every new doctrinal fad, or by error in teaching and doctrine, lifts up that spiritual child and removes them from that place of that anchor in the truth of Christ. That spiritual childishness or immaturity, somebody who is lifted up by every wind and human cunning and craftiness and deceit, There's an onslaught as Christians. We face an onslaught of winds of doctrine. 
by human cunning and crafty deceit. We're bombarded with that all the time as the church. Sometimes from within, sometimes from without. Paul says, as we build up the body, we will no longer be like that. So rather, what's the alternative? Instead of being children tossed and unanchored, he says, grow up. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. In other words, uh, pursue maturity. Now, I think that our growth is, is in this text demonstrated in a few different ways. Our spiritual maturity is expressed in terms of unity. We saw that in the early chapters, right? That we maintain the bond of peace by what? Bearing with each other in patience and gentleness. So spiritual maturity produces and manifests as unity and as bearing with those that you think are immature or more sinful than you or not as smart as you. Bearing with each other. How else does it um, manifest? Manifests as knowledge. Maturity, now too many of us I think strip the other ones away and we just say knowledge, that's great. Knowledge is my best marker of maturity because I'm good on the knowledge part. I can really absorb, I can really teach, I can really know. That is a part of maturity. That is a part of Christian maturity and growth, which is knowledge. You, you increase in learning of who Christ is. You renew your mind by the word. You, you teach one another the word. You live out the word. Your knowledge absolutely is part of the manifestation of growth. And then the third way it manifests is maturity. Well, how is maturity defined here? Is it some arbitrary marker that we define as what maturity is? No, it doesn't tell us that in verse 15. It says we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. What's the goal? Who is the, who is the vision and manifestation of ultimate personhood, ultimate manhood, ultimate humanity, the perfect one, Jesus Christ, who is the head? So the church growing in unity and knowledge is also growing into maturity, which is, frankly, Christ-likeness. The uh, author John, who writes later in 1 John, says that when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him face to face. In other words, we will be transformed. And so now, as we witness Christ and as we manifest him one to another and through his word, we are becoming like him. We are being transformed into his image. But then when he appears, whatever's left will be done in a second. You see what the Bible, how it puts it there is that we are growing into the image of Christ, but we won't be fully there until literally we see him. And then every bit that is not like Christ will be immediately gone. And we will all shed whatever remaining sin was in our lives in a moment. But nonetheless, the church has not said, well, you know, it's going to be tough until then. So just kind of slog through it no grow up towards christ grow up towards him who is the head i love what the mechanism is given here how do we grow what's the alternative what's the alternative to this child spiritual childness what's the mechanism look at verse 15 what's the mechanism it's a verb i heard someone say it's speaking Speaking is the primary mechanism Paul gives here for this growth. Speaking the truth in 
love. No church fellowship, no body of Christ will achieve this type of spiritual growth without a deep relational dependence on one another. You could apply this in a million ways. I mean, speaking the truth in love. You could, you could apply that in a small group context where you gather once a week to speak the truth in love, to rehash God's word together, to bounce it off each other, to challenge each other with the truth in love, graciously inviting people to obey and live with you in the life of Christ. You could apply it as a preacher. Speak the truth. Speak the truth in love. Don't be a jerk at the pulpit. But don't be someone that hides and shrouds the truth because you're afraid to say it. Speak the truth in love. That can be applied in the family context. Fathers and mothers, speak the truth in love. It can be applied at coffee time. Speak the truth in love. Use our time together to speak. The body is so dependent on the relational element. Now, some of you are more shy than others. Some of you are more introverted. Um, That's understandable. That's okay. Mark Dever says it really well. He says, look, everyone's got a wallet. Some of us have more capital to spend in relationships than others. Some of us walk into church with like $300 bills. We can stay there till 2.30 in the afternoon just talking and fellowshipping. Some of us come in with about three bucks. But he said, you know what? Spend what you have. Come in and spend what you have with somebody else. Not to just to say you did it, but because in so doing, in spending your relational capital, speaking the truth in love, you are actually, you are pushing in some degree this body toward the fullness of Christ. Do you see how if you submit even your relationships and even your activity, your speech to God, you can be a part of that maturity. Isn't that amazing? We are called to participate in the spiritual maturity of one another. Talk, just talk and address one another. As I said at the beginning, Paul says later in Ephesians, address one another. In other words, don't ignore each other. Bring each other to awareness of God's word. Share where Christ has been teaching you and growing you. It's Father's Day, so I can't help but pause for a moment over the role of the father. Uh, Janelle, you pointed out that Patrick prays over his children and teaches them as well as learning Fathers are called to speak the truth in love, to build up their families, to enrich their children through God's word and through prayer and through encouragement, exhortation. Fathers, you are given that as a primary responsibility. Of course, women are called to the very same thing, but it is um, very influential from a father and, and sets a healthy tone for a home. So thankful for that. If if that's taking place in your home, and may God give us grace to increase in that. So number one, disciples grow up. There's an alternative to being spiritually mature, and it is to grow up into Christ. Number two, disciples hold the body together. He goes on to say, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, is it, with which it is equipped. So from Christ who is the head, he is the one who governs and rules the body. And if you think about it, the head con- contains the control system of the body, right? 
So the only reason my hands even feed my mouth is because my brain told it to do so. Or that, that's maybe simple, especially those of you in the medical community. But it's profound. Because from Christ, who is the, the head, the control center, he leads the body to do the right thing for itself. So even though you are working out your spiritual gifts for the good of those in the church, you are doing so at the command and according to the word of God. According to the mind of Christ, Philippians 2 says that we have the mind of Christ together. We have been called into and, and exposed to the mind of God through Christ. And so the body, as I said before, does not grow arbitrarily toward its own vision. You know, in church planning, we sometimes hear this, this language a lot, like, well, what's your vision? Well, not a whole lot different from the church for the last 2,000 years. I'm all about articulating it well. You know, in our church, we say advancing, uh, joining Christ to advance liberty in Smith Falls. I'm all for creating something that people understand what we're about. But honestly, the church does not define its vision or its goal or its maturity. Growing up into him who is the head from whom the whole body is joined together. In other words, we are in submission to and subject to the mind of Christ. What is his vision? What is his vision of ministry? What is his uh, purpose in the kingdom? Our prayer in the Lord's prayer is, thy will be done, thy, sorry to quote King James, it's just what we're all familiar to, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we are copying a model that is already presented to us in heaven. So we do not have some unique expression of what makes our church so special I don't know. Nothing. Our church is, I think, special because I think we are special to the degree to which we have obeyed and, and followed the scriptures in each other's lives. How's that for special and unique? But into Christ, he stands as our head. And so listen to this, though. Despite his role as our chief, notice what the text says about how the body is actually held together. He says, from whom? So the body is held together from Christ because it is his will for it to do so. But by what? By every joint with which it is equipped. How is the body actually held together? It's held together by the joints. By the joints. Who are the joints, my friends? I think we've already seen this in the text. That the joints are the different measures of grace that God has given to the church through Christ. Right? It says that he has given a measure of the grace of Christ according to his work, according to his promise. We have each received some measure of grace. We are the various joints. And we hold the body together. This does not usurp power or authority from Christ. Because it is his will and his desire and it is his power which holds us together. But again, the mechanism for growth is speaking. There is a mechanism for unity in the body and functioning in the body. And it is the working of the joints. Now I want to take you a little bit into the Greek here because it's fascinating the, the, um, the implications for how it's translated. And I think the original um, phrases get us much closer than the English translation. He says, Paul says, from whom the whole body joined and held together. 
Those are two different verbs. Being joined and held together. The word joined there speaks of the structure or the assembly, the organizational fashion in which you conduct your church. In other words, people know what they're doing. Um, they, are, they are working toward it. There is a, an awareness of where each other stands in the body and how we can help each other and serve each other. So there's an actual structure according to the scriptures. Remember in Acts when there were too many tables um, to feed the widows and the poor and they came to the apostles and they said, uh, there are people going hungry. Our widows are going hungry and your widows are being fed. Um, speaking of their, um, their ethnic background. And the apostles say, it is not right for us to abandon the teaching of God's word. That's structure. The apostles said, we have a role in its teaching and we want to appoint you to fulfill a role. That's structure. That's wise structure. And I think that that's how we can continually grow here at Evergreen is to, is to make clear what our structure is. Who does what and when and why? Structure is very important. It's, it's held together, joined together by the structure. And so our interdependence on one another according to our gifts is very helpful in binding us together. If everyone just showed up and said, let the spirit lead, you know, where you're supposed to go, we become very frustrated with each other. But I think a structure is very helpful in, in God-given in terms of binding us together. But it says being joined and held together. Do you know what that word held together means? It means being knit. That's the ongoing knitting that takes place. Structure is not enough to hold us together. The Bible says we are joined and held together. We are knit together. That is an intertwining of our gifts and our lives and our love. We need our lives to be transparent to one another and, and, and accountable to one another and literally knit together. Knit together. So we are joined through structures and we are joined through knitting. I don't knit, but I see how you have a needle and you are bringing together two strands to create a, a single fabric. That's the picture of the body and how it's held together. This is the will of God through Christ. Through the mind of Christ, this is how he builds his church and holds it together. Now, how many joints are supposed to be participate in this? I can't remember. Oh, every joint. Every joint. There are not some joints which are dispensable, optional. Mm, I'm not important. The whole metaphor of the body screams against that. If a toe is stubbed, the body compensates for that. When a thumb is hit by a hammer, the whole body grieves. Does the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? Or the eye to the ear, I have no need of you? Nonsense. Paul says, for we give greater honor to those members which are less honorable. Friends, it's held together by every joint. You think your gifts are insignificant or they're more private or you're not charismatic or you're not an eloquent speaker. Not that there's any model of that in this church. At least not for me. You think my gifts are insignificant. My place in the church is insignificant. Wrong. If you know Jesus Christ, you are one of the joints commanded to participate in this activity. Disciples hold the body together. Not the pastor, not the denomination. 
not the statement of faith, although it is vastly helpful. The body is held together by the working of every joint. Every joint. Friends, you matter, which is why, you know, when we talk about as a church, we want to grow as a church, both in maturity and numerically. We would love to see growth. And I, I have tried as much as I've been able, and as far as I think God has given me clarity, which I don't think is all the time, but when we speak of spiritual maturity, we always talk about serving the church. We don't do it because we're looking for volunteers. Oh, we need people to run the, you know, it's like at an amusement park. We need people to run the rides to make sure the things don't fall off the tracks. No, we're not looking for volunteers. If you want to grow in Christ and participate in his body, it says it's held together by every joint. So if you're a joint looking for a place, you need to knit your life together with the body and join the structure. I mean, literally, you have a gift and you can use it. It may not be it may not be the most useful on a Sunday morning, but rest assured, your gift fits somewhere. I have people coming to me talking about organizing a hospitality um, uh, network so that we can be really good at taking care of each other outside of the church. I have people coming to me helping me figure out how to build a schedule, which is more clear, build a sign-in sheet that is more helpful for parents, people setting out food so that fellowship can take place, people helping me with vision for the church, in organizational matters, there are so many vast arrays of gifts that God has given the church. It's held together by every joint. I love that. I love it because I do not want to lead a church that depends on the gifts of one or two. First of all, it's way too exhausting and stressful for those gifts that everyone thinks is more important than their own. And number two, it deprives people of using and participating in that structure so my friends if you are musical if you are administrative if you have a compassionate heart if you are hospitable if you are a teacher let someone know talk to somebody say i i feel like i have a gift and i just don't i'm not using it right now but i think god wants to grow me to join the structure and to hold it together because the body will be held together because that's what Christ wants. And I, I want you to recognize that you play a role in that. The pastor does not hold the church together or the elders. That is just one of the gifts given the church. It's a public gift for sure, but it's not, it says it's held together by every joint. <clears throat> and, the, and other passages make very clear how significant every joint truly is. That's not just lip service to the less honorable um, joints or gifts. So our second point is that the disciples or disciples hold the church together. So if you are a disciple in Christ and you're wondering, am I living as a disciple? Am I growing as a disciple? Ask yourself, am I participating in holding this church together? Because again, we're not talking about the universal church. We're not talking about the capital C, big global church. Because you cannot serve coffee to those in the Congo today. Or in sub-Saharan Africa or in South America or even in British Columbia, you can't serve them coffee today. You cannot necessarily encourage those in the faith who are in the global church. You know who you can serve is right here. Right here. So that's number two, is that disciples hold the body together. Uh, number three is that every disciple takes responsibility. Now, I, that we kind of covered that, but let's look a little bit more. Because 
here is where the power behind the Greek construction is so amazing for us. The phrase here that is translated that, I'm, that in my outline is that every disciple takes responsibility is when it says, being joined together by every joint, it's this part, with which is it, it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body, sorry, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so we recognize that every joint is called to the participation of this. But the translation here, with which it is equipped, it's held together by every joint with, in other words, what's the tool that each joint has, with which it is equipped. What does that mean? It's a two-word construction in the Greek. I'm going to try to actually pronounce it. You might find this entertaining. Energian or energian epikoregia. You may have recognized in the first one, depending on how badly I butchered it, that the word energy is present in the root of that Greek word. And epikoregian, we don't recognize necessarily. But this is what those two words literally mean. And this is the title of my sermon. It means energetic contribution. Energetic contribution. In other words, active pouring into or giving. So how does each joint actually put in to that construction or that knitting together or that holding together? How does it actually do it? Through energetic contribution. Put the rubber to the road. And so this, this powerful working, this energetic, this is speaking of not sort of potential power. This is not sort of like uh, potential power you learn in physics. There's potential power and kinetic power. So a roller coaster at the top of the hill is potential energy, right? Because it, there's, gravi there's gravity to act on it in the space between it and the earth. And when it's moving, it's this energetic power. So he's speaking of not theoretical thought or just, um, you know, mental assent or sort of casual affiliation of the church, but it's actually held together by active, energetic contribution. And so I hope this is not surprising to you that the health and unity of the local church depends pretty radically on the active contribution of every single member, every single joint. It's a supply. And so if you think of a church as being held together by four or five joints who are energetically contributing, how does that work on the rest of the body? How does it work for those five joints who are pouring in their supply and instead of receiving a reciprocal energetic supply, they are in fact supplying for the entire body. That's, that's a recipe for sickness and burnout and, and uh, being hospitalized. And my friends, some church people, lay, lay people and pastors do get hospitalized under these types of conditions. I just met with pastors this past week. And there was a pastor at a church that was very healthy, growing very quickly, big budget. And he pastored for some 14 years there. And they found him uh, in the fetal position under his desk, bawling his eyes out. 
He's now church planning in Calgary. He's, uh, he's since recovered, but he spent seven years away from the church. Why? Because you have probably, I don't know the church, but you probably have a small team of energetic contributors and you have a very large group of potential consumers, absorbers, observers. That's a recipe for hospitalization, both in the physical sense and in the spiritual sense. It's a supply. It's an energetic supply. It's an eager, energetic. Now, again, we all have different size wallets. This is not to compare to each other. Look how much I look how much time I give. Look how much you know I contribute to the offering. Look how much I how many times I volunteer, how many babies I hold. So and so, they oh, they are not very oh, look at them. That's not very energetic contribution. Each gift is meant to equip the church to build itself up in love. That's the goal. This is how this is Ephesians saying, Church, you are doing well. Pursue this and grow in this. Now, as I said, it's Father's Day, and I can't pass over this without addressing fathers because in disciple making, and this might address, Jake, what you were saying a little bit, is that God has made different spheres of governance. The very first sphere of governance that God made was the family. It was Adam and Eve together, and he gave them children. He gave them a purpose. He gave them his word. And he gave them an environment. And so the governance of the family is, is foundational. It is square one for God's work in the world. Now, as you say, there is a crisis. There's a cultural crisis of family breakdown. That I actually had in my notes. I'm not just saying that. But there's an absolute cultural crisis of the breakdown of the family. Not just because family members are abandoning one another, but because family stands in opposition and condemnation of the new sexual ethic. A mother and a father stand in condemnation, in natural condemnation, over the so-called trans movement and, and homosexual ethics and all that. The family stands as a representation of God's natural order. And so there's no doubt the family is under attack. There's no doubt that the family is being pushed aside and dismissed in very many ways. Where does disciple-making begin? Where is the bulk of disciple-making done? Is it in children's church one hour a week on Sundays? It's in the home. So my goal as a church is to equip mothers and fathers to make disciples of their children. We love your kids. We teach them for that one hour. But that will not, let me repeat, that will not sustain your children in their faith in Christ. The home is the first sovereign sphere of God's instruction. Deuteronomy chapter 6 gives us a beautiful vision of the family teaching their children when they rise, when they sit, when they sleep, when they eat. Let God's word permeate your home. The only thing as sad as a father who has abandoned his home is a father who has disappeared within his home. It's the only thing more sad because he's there and he has given up his influence and his God-given mandate to influence and affect that home. Do you want to know how I expect my children will face the moral revolution? I will instruct them daily in my home and I will show them how to participate in the life of the church. I expect that we all as family members desire for our children to come to a knowledge of Christ and then to walk with him. 
Right now, statistics show us that 8 out of 10 people leave the church by age 23. We're losing 80% of a generation right now. Very few. What is the church doing to disciple the next generation? What is the church doing to say our children are our primary mission field? Jesus said it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so men, fathers, I speak specifically to you right now. Are we truly investing in our children? Are we putting aside the things that distract us from our role in our children's lives? Do we demonstrate and energetically supply God's covenant kindness in your home? Because again, your, your family will not withstand the onslaught that is coming from government mandate and cultural attack if your children are not absolutely anchored in God's covenant truth, understanding who they are and where they're going. Are we modeling the fruit of the Spirit? Are we modeling in prayer? Are we modeling in teaching? Are we modeling in holiness? Are we modeling devotion to God's people in the church? Again, we, we wonder, why do children walk away from the church? Many times it's because we say we belong to a church and we prioritize it zero. So what do children pick up on? What do children pick up on? They pick up on that it's okay to say I belong to a church, that I'm a Christian, I identify this way, and really treat God's people and the being together as secondary. Children pick up on that and they walk away from the church because it has no relevance in their parents' lives. This is how we strengthen the next generation. We instruct them. We take responsibility for their education and their discipleship. Whether they are homeschooled or in a school, we are responsible for what they are learning. May God give us conviction to do all things for the glory of God and in his name, equipping our children to live for tomorrow. Like when you think of, um, I heard this amazing analogy, not analogy, but this biblical example. When you look at Daniel and his friends, Uh, going into exile. They were probably teenagers, early 20s. And they were instructed in in, in pagan education. They were instructed around uh, pagan gods, everything that God detests. They refused the meat of the king. Eventually, we see the story of the three young men who are thrown in a furnace for not denying the one true God. Where on earth do these young people get that kind of conviction? We talk about, we want, we want to know how to keep kids coming to church on Sundays and we struggle with it. These young men, surrounded by a pagan environment, walked willing to, willingly into a furnace heated seven times its regular heat. For the name of the Lord, for the zeal of the Lord. Why is that? One historian traced it back to the reforms of King Josiah when they cleaned out the temple and he found the temple scrolls and he tore, he had them read and he tore his clothes discovering how far they had fallen from God. And he immediately instituted reforms, burning of the, of the uh, pagan altars, uh, removal of the false priests, restoring temple worship, temple service to God. And we see that those young people grew up in that environment that environment where it mattered so much to those people to follow God that they destroyed every cultural piece 
of rebellion against God, and they brought the people back to God. Now, we know that, that those reforms didn't last long, but for those young people, Israel fell back into rebellion. But for those young people who witnessed those reforms, those that returned to God, they entered exile prepared to stand for God. That's making a disciple, not knowing what the future will look like. It's worth it in every single generation to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and equip them to live in the church and to serve the church and to be grounded in what they believe, not to bend to cultural wind. Again, how are we not going to be children tossed to and fro? The body's going to build itself up in love by using its gifts. So that's my call to us, church. Are we going to face the next generation? Are we going to face the opposition that's coming? Are we going to stand and be a witness as the manifold wisdom of God? Or are we doing this for fun until the money runs out? I truly believe God has established this church to be a force for the kingdom. Because when we do that over and over and over and over and over again, the net result is massive. Many tidal waves start as a ripple in the middle of the ocean, gaining momentum and size until it hits the beach. 